I think I say in the preface to my book, no one will be able to read the book and predict their after-tax income after United Army. They won't know what the size of the queue will be that they have to join in order to be seen for medical purposes. Uh, I don't think any Irish government with any integrity could give clarity in that, at that level of precision. But they could give clarity over the general design of the Constitution as modified. Uh, they could give general clarity over the direction of public policy in a whole series of specific domains. Hello and welcome to this month's Aaron's podcast. I'm Rory Montgomery. My guest today is Brendan O'Leary, who's the Lauder Professor of Political Science at the University of Pennsylvania. As he says, he's both a Southerner, being born in Cork, and a Northerner, being educated in Down and Antrim, a university education and much of his career in the UK before moving to the United States. He, I think, is widely recognised as the preeminent political scientist uh, working on Northern Ireland. He has published some 30 books, and I suppose in a way his magnum opus is a treatise on Northern Ireland in three volumes, published in 2019. He's also an active member of the Aaron's Project, uh, both um, as a publisher of articles, but also as a member of the steering committee, um, as am I. However, today we're not focusing on his articles, but rather on his latest book, which is um, being published on the 1st of September. It's called Making Sense of a United Ireland. Should it happen and how might it happen? And I should say that this book um, covers uh, a great range of, of subjects. But today our focus is going to be more narrowly, principally on questions of institutions and constitutional change. There's a vast amount of other material, whether on policing or culture or symbols and emblems or um, education, whatever, which maybe we can return to on another day. So, Brendan, you're most welcome. Thank you, Rory. A pleasure to talk with you. Brendan, you say in the book that you imagine, or your best guess is, that a referendum on Irish unity or on reunification, as you as you call it, um, is likely to happen around... 2030. What are your, your reasons for thinking this? First of all, demographic change in uh, Northern Ireland is proceeding slowly but steadily. And we have a census to be published um, sometime after this pod podcast. It will almost certainly show a continuing decline in the proportion of cultural Protestants in Northern Ireland. It will almost certainly show a rise in proportion of cultural Catholics. That's people who are Catholic by belief as well as from Catholic family backgrounds. It may indeed show an increase in, in the others as well. But I do some very simple calculations in the book, which suggest that by 2030, there will no longer be a cultural Protestant majority in the electorate, however measured. So for the very first time in the history of Northern Ireland, its future, in principle, is outside the hands of cultural Protestants. 
Now, of course, that doesn't automatically mean that all non-Protestants will vote for Irish reunification, but it does mean that it will be the first time that that's a genuine possibility. That's demographic change. Then there's electoral change. That's more ambiguous. But it, it, on the data on electoral change, it's very clear that uh, unionists are declining in overall support. In the book, I visualize this through Westminster elections. Uh, and in the late 1990s, um, unionists held 13 of the 18 Westminster seats. Today, there is a nationalist plurality of nine members of the Westminster Parliament, one alliance person, and eight unionists. That's a, a major uh, transformation by anyone's standards. And then thirdly and lastly, I think the outworkings of the United Kingdom's folly to decide to leave the European Union have disturbed the potential uh, of the previous status quo. The whole purpose of the Good Friday Agreement from the point of unionists was to uh, make Catholics reconciled to the Union, to make nationalists reconciled to the Union. By going along with the hardest of possible lawful exits from the European Union, unionists have, I think, set in train uh, a series of responses that I think have undermined the legitimacy of the Union in the eyes of cultural Catholics. So those are the major reasons why I think uh, we should expect uh, referendums around about 2030. I also counsel, by the way, against premature calls for referendums. I think it's uh, both the legal case that referendums shouldn't be called until such uh, until such a point where it's clear that there has been a, a shift in opinion. I wouldn't argue for anything more than 50-50 before uh, referendums should be held, but it would be inappropriate to hold a referendum where there was not sufficient evidence that um, a majority of Northern Ireland would be likely to vote for United Ireland. The Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, of course, under the Northern Ireland Act, um, can call a referendum at any time but is obliged to do so uh, once he or she believes that a majority in favour of United Ireland is likely. And there's been some debate um, about whether or not the criteria um, on the basis of which uh, he or she should make the decision should be spelt out in detail. This was rejected by the High Court in Northern Ireland, but it's been you know pushed by others, including Sinn Féin and indeed recently Leo Varadkar. Uh, what's your own view? I think it's absolutely appropriate for people to seek clarification about what evidence would be used by the Secretary of State. I think it's clear that the legal distinction that you make is an important one. Uh, nothing stops the UK from holding an early referendum, um, but would obviously be inappropriate in the absence of uh, sufficient evidence. So what would be that sufficient evidence? I think uh, there are several ways in which that evidence could be measured. One would be if a majority, and I mean a majority, of uh, Northern Ireland's Westminster delegation were to call for a referendum. That would be pretty difficult to resist in terms of Westminster legitimacy. And the reason I emphasize the MPs is it's quite possible, given current circumstances, that the Northern Ireland Assembly 
might not be sitting. The second uh, reasonable way in which uh, a referendum might be initiated would be by a majority resolution of the Northern Ireland Assembly. Not simply its nationalists, but that would probably require a significant portion of alliance MLAs to initiate uh, a call for a referendum. And the third way is to rely on surveys and public opinion polls. And as you know, uh, Rory, one of the things that we're trying to do in Aaron's is to track accurately and annually detailed uh, knowledge of how people north and south think about the subject of reunification and of the momentous changes that reunification might bring. So in Aaron's, we hope to provide objective evidence of the state of public opinion and how it's shifting. So those are three bases on which uh, a reasonable Secretary of State, I'm not saying that all Secretaries of State have been reasonable, but those are the bases on which judgment could be made. What One last point I'd make. The UK is not an entirely lawless system, despite uh, recent bad behaviour. So if a Secretary of State were to resist calls for a referendum, when uh, some of the objective evidence that I've referred to indicated that there had been a sufficient opinion shift, they would be open to a court case. Uh, yes, the High Court reasonably uh, made the judgment that it did in the past, but uh, it's quite possible there could be future court cases. You, you make, and I'm not asking you to comment here, just to, to, to tell our listeners that you address a couple of points which have arisen in previous podcasts. One is the question of whether a majority in a referendum should be defined as a simple majority, and you very convincingly say, as have Colin Harvey and I think most others, that a majority is a majority. Um, it's not a qualified majority for a whole range of reasons, not least the text of the Good Friday Agreement, but also um, on the basis of principle. Um, and you also, uh, I think, make clear that even though there isn't a specific um, requirement um, in either the agreement or the Irish Constitution for a referendum in the Republic, it is effectively inconceivable um, that there would not be one. Um, moving on, Eight years from now to 2030, you know, in political time, um, well, in some ways a long time, in other ways not such a long time, uh, and you argue that preparations should begin now. Um, what sort of preparations do you think should be focused on, and in particular by the Irish government and the southern political system um, over the period ahead? I think it's vital that preparation be begun in the Republic and in a thoroughgoing manner. And the reason I argue for that is that we can't expect the UK to organize in advance of when a referendum is called. Um, they won't, uh, their political class won't be responsive to such um, a demand or suggestion. Mm. Given that it's Ireland, which by virtue of its constitution, it's modified Article 3, which seeks to create a, a united sovereign Ireland. It, it is, I believe, incumbent upon the Irish political class of all parties to engage in detailed deliberation about what form of a united Ireland they'd like to see established in the event of successful referendums in favour of unification, north and south. I think nothing less than the establishment of a ministry is required, because unlike Brexit, uh, the 
prospect of reunification affects every single dimension of Irish public life. Uh, and it cross-cuts every single ministry. So it's vital to have a ministry that will develop and um, provide uh, fresh information for each aspect of public policy that's going to be affected by a united Ireland. Uh, that ministry, I think, should be an unconventional ministry in the sense that um, it will be uh, more open to the public, more transparent in its operations. It shouldn't be, in any sense, a, a, a secretive executive body. Uh, but I think that's one thing to do. And in, if we did that, we'd be imitating the Koreans. They have had a ministry of uh, reunification for a very long time. And they have a far more arduous prospect of reunification than our own one. So if they can think about it, we should. That's point one. Point two, we need to have a standing constitutional forum in the manner of previous Irish forums, to which all parties on the island uh, are, are welcome to come. It shouldn't sit 365 days a year, but it should sit for a month to six weeks of every year, and it should be open to uh, continual hearings and deliberations on all aspects of prospective change, constitutional, institutional, economic, cultural, social, uh, an array of questions related to rights. All of these things can be hammered out in public fora. Then I think it would be important to have systematic evaluations of opinion on difficult questions. And the best way to do that is to conduct citizens' assemblies. Uh, but you don't have to have um, numerous uh, citizens' assemblies um, every week or every month. You can have lots of smaller deliberative forums in which you test Irish public opinion and if it's possible, northern public opinion, on small dimensions of the momentous question of reunification. What changes to educational arrangements would be acceptable? What would be considered desirable? Uh, what would be considered unacceptable? So we can use the systematic experience that the Irish have had over citizens' assemblies to prepare in advance so that there are no astonishing surprises. Lastly, I think we have to prepare for a very, very good reason. The UK government, as we've just recognized, has the ability, if it wishes, to initiate a referendum at any time. And it's possible that an Irish government could be caught flat-footed without preparation by a deliberate decision of the UK to call a a referendum in order to cement the union at least for seven years. It's worth bearing in mind that according to the text of the Good Friday Agreement, there is no limit on the number of referendums that can be held on the subject of reunification, but uh, another one can't be held for seven years. And unfortunately, but not surprisingly, the question of Irish self-determination has become entangled with the Scottish question. And at the current moment, both the Conservative Party and the Labour Party are unwilling to allow the Scots to decide when they should have a, a second referendum on independence. It's possible that a future leader of either the Conservative Party or the Labour Party or any other leader of a 
the UK coalition government, could decide that there was an appropriate moment when they thought they could win the referendum in Scotland to hold one and to do one in Northern Ireland at the same time. We need to be prepared for that possibility, however outlandish it might seem. So those are some of the key elements of preparation that I think are required. Uh, let me give you a, one simple example, work being done some of, by some of our colleagues in Aaron's, notably Oren Doyle, David Kenny, and Chris McRudden, is deliberately designed to map all the legislation passed in the two jurisdictions in Ireland since 1922 in order to appraise what is already convergent, what is divergent, uh, how divergent the laws are. Uh, and that will enable uh, intelligent assessments to be made of what kind of legislation might be required um, in, the, in the morrow of successful votes for reunification. Yes, indeed. And of course, Bryce Dixon has done similar work in regard to human rights. And our last podcast was with Tobias Locke uh, on the question of German um, unification. And again, uh, he was very interesting about the, uh, you know, the large project um, that there was to examine legislation and to see what needed to be updated or, or changed. And, and, and if I may say, Rory, German reunification took all German intellectuals and German civil servants by surprise, yes. it was an astonishing and fast-moving reunification. And although the Germans did many things right, uh, I'm sure in retrospect they would have liked to have got some things done better, which they could have done better had they had more adequate preparation. No, absolutely. And then one other little footnote. I was a member of the Secretariat of the Forum for Peace and Reconciliation, um, which sat under Catherine McGuinness between 94 and 96 after the IRA ceasefire, the first ceasefire. And I'm glad that you recognise that it's a possible you know, model along with citizens' assemblies, because I think at times there's a rather simplistic view that citizens' assemblies can answer all questions, no matter how sure. broad and, and, and so on. Um, in your in the book, you you draw a distinction in terms of looking ahead uh, and the sort of thing that would be put before uh, the public and the electorates north and south. You you talk about a, a model based um, approach and if you like a sort of process based uh, approach. And we can talk in a moment about the the models that you identify as the most likely. But maybe you could just explain what you mean by this uh, distinction. Right. So. Imagine we're going to have a referendum in the north before the one in the south. I can explain why I think that's the sequence. But imagine we are. The question would be, what is the question being posed to the people in the north? Is it simply to vote on principle about whether they want to be part of the United Sovereign Ireland, to use the wording in the Good Friday Agreement, or whether they would prefer Northern Ireland to remain in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. That would be a vote on principle. After the vote on principle was passed in the North, presumably in the South, then the question would arise what model of a United Ireland would be implemented as a result of that principle having been satisfied. And that could lead to a constitutional convention across the island in which um, people from the entirety of the island, of the island voted according to proportional representation to create a constitutional convention which would draft a, a new constitution for a united Ireland. 
that's voting on principle. Now, the problem with voting on principle is you don't know what's going to happen. You can su suggest to people that Doyle Aaron will do the following, or you can suggest to people that, that the Constitutional Convention will be run according to the following principles and will accept the, the following minimal uh, requirements for a, a democratic and constitutional Ireland. But you still leave people quite uncertain as to what will happen. And that could be disturbing both for Northerners and for Southerners. They don't know exactly what they're getting. But if that's the decision, if we decide that that's what we want, a vote on principle, we have to set out in advance very carefully what would follow after a vote on principle. And that would indeed mean setting out the terms of the Constitutional Convention. And it would mean saying exactly what would happen in the immediate aftermath of the transfer of sovereignty. Mm. And that brings me to the question of model. The alternative approach is to say, well, the Republic of Ireland has to endorse reunification just as much as the North. Any reunification must be satisfactory to the people of the South, their elected representatives, just as much as it has to be for a majority in the North and their elected representatives. Accordingly, it's entirely appropriate for the South, with maximum interaction and feasible deliberation with people from all over the island and beyond, to devise a detailed map and model of what a united Ireland would be like, to make uh, a clear text available to the electorate in the North before they vote in the first referendum, setting out exactly what would happen in the event of a united Ireland. It would, in some senses, resemble what the Scottish government did in 2014. There's 600, um, 700 page paper on what an independence bond would be like. The advantage of the model approach is that both Northerners and Southerners would know what the constitutional and legislative tensions were in the aftermath of successful votes for reunification. The disadvantage would be that the model was designed and built in the South. Yes, with maximum deliberation and interaction with Northerners, but nevertheless built and designed in the South. So Northerners would not get to reshape the United Ireland until they'd actually joined it. So there's a dilemma there. The dilemma is, do you vote on principle and leave model building to a constitutional convention or to Doyle Aaron, a reconstituted Doyle Aaron? Or do you design the model in advance to give people clarity in what they'd uh, be voting on in a referendum? And what I have done with my Aaron's colleague, John Gary, and with some other colleagues um, at Queen's University, Belfast, and University College Dublin, is to test public opinion north and south on this question. Uh, we, I explain the difference between voting on principle and voting on model to them, and then ask them, after they've thought about it for a while, what they prefer. And what is interesting to my mind is how much both Northerners and Southerners decide after deliberation they prefer to vote on the model. And I think the reason they they do that 
is because they're deeply affected by seeing what happened in Brexit, um, where they voted on principle, and yet it was unclear what the nature of the UK's exit from the European Union might be. And the, the chaos which followed is very visible to current citizens. So I think that's part of the context, which explains why they prefer to know more in detail about what would occur in the event of a vote for reunification. The other matter is I have polarized the choice between process on principle and, and model. But when one reflects on it further, it's quite clear that you have to have provisional arrangements for a united Ireland, even if you vote on principle. And those provisional arrangements would surely shape what would eventually follow. So it's not a completely polarized choice. You have to do some sketching of what the provisional government of United Ireland would look like before you have a constitutional convention, or indeed while the constitutional convention is sitting. Because I'm not one of those people who think that it's appropriate to have a long transition between UK sovereignty and Irish sovereignty. Uh, I think with appropriate planning, uh, in the event of a result on both sides that is clearly seen to reflect majority will, and in both cases, simple majority will, 50% plus one in clean referendums, then there should be a rapid and speedy transition, if only for purposes of preserving public order. I suppose as well, I mean, and, and you, you say that, of course, you've, um, you know, perhaps for illustrative purposes, uh, you know, simplified uh, these two approaches. And uh, it occurs to me that, of course, there may be some elements of a model which can be described with, with greater precision than than others because on the crucial question, and we'll come to this in a moment, uh, of whether devolved institutions continue in Northern Ireland or not, one assumes that the views of the the unionist population would be extremely important um, and, and they wouldn't most likely have expressed those opinions in, in advance of a referendum. Can I, can I take that point, Rory? Sure. It's, it's very, very important. Unionists' political leaders, for quite rational reasons, will not wish to say in advance which model of a united Ireland they prefer, because they would consider that to be a concession mm. to accept in advance that they were going to lose. And that poses a problem for the South. Um, do we postpone all questions of constitutional and institutional design and transformation until unionists have accepted uh, the outcome of a referendum? Or do we make it clear in advance that what, what we plan to do? And do we engage the unionist population, bypassing, if necessary, their immediate elected leaders? interacting with those they elect at local council level, at assembly level, uh, to try and get very, very careful assessments of their opinion, including using the methods of deliberative polling that I have just briefly described. So we face that additional dilemma. It's just, it's not just that Northerners in abstract um, are being denied the opportunity to know in advance uh, what they're going to get. It's unionists among the Northerners deliberately not wanting to know what's going to happen for political reasons. So we have to think about that. And the, the way I suggest 
that we get out of that dilemma is to plan a model in advance. Yes, but a model, I suppose, always capable of adjustment um you know in the of light course. of developments yes of, of course um one other thing that just occurs to me um which has occurred to me quite a lot uh, during these uh, podcasts is that a, a lot of our contributors have said and you read it many places well what will matter most to people will won't be constitutional uh, and institutional structures um it'll be you know the issues of 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 healthcare and taxation and uh, you know, education and, and so on um, but it seems to me that uh, a bit as with the Brexit referendum, um, there's nothing really to prevent um, either side from, you know, portraying a, a land of milk and and honey. Um, and I suppose these questions are, you know, legitimate and live political questions um, in the existing. Um, Republic as they are in 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 Northern Ireland, so there are different views on the appropriate level of taxation, for example. So I suppose when people say that they would like to know kind of a hundred percent what's going to be happening on those issues, I suppose intellectually it's probably a bit dishonest to suggest that it, this level of certainty is is possible, even if you can give broad in, indications. I, I agree. I I'm I think I say in the preface to my book. No one will be able to read the book and predict their after-tax income mm -hmm. after a United Army. They won't know what the size of the queue will be that they have to join mm -hmm. in order to be seen for medical purposes. Uh, I don't think any uh, Irish government with any integrity could give clarity in that at that level of precision. But they could give clarity over the general design of the constitution as modified. Uh, they could give general clarity over the direction of public policy in a whole series of specific domains. And by the way, uh, I don't think people should be confident that they know how people vote in a referendum or what drives them. Uh, I think it's a mistake to have a model of the electorate as one person. Uh, the Populations north and south are heterogeneous. They differ by age, by by gender, by uh, ethnicity, by religious belief or lack of it, by class, and they are differently affected by questions of national and collective identity. So everything is going to be in the mix. There might be the odd voter who decides everything by a calculation of what their pension is going to be five years from now. But I think that will be a, a general rarity. That's not what was happening in the UK uh, referendum in 2016, which was similarly momentous about the institutional relations of the UK, both with itself and with its neighbours. And they were dramatically driven by questions of national and collective identity. And yes, there were those who voted egocentrically on the basis of their estimations of their economic interests, but there were many who voted sociotropically, as we say, in social science. That is to say, in their general conception of what would be best for uh, the nation as a whole. So it's not easy to put it mildly, to predict what will drive voting behavior in the referendums. But I, I am among those who believe naively or otherwise that uh, as much transparency and integrity 
is as possible, is very important, not least to achieve legitimacy in implementing the outcome. In describing what you regard as the two principal alternatives um, for the governance of, of a United Ireland, um, you have one version which effectively involves continuing devolution um, within Northern Ireland, maintenance in a way of the institutions of the agreement with modifications, obviously in some areas. Uh, and the other is what I suppose the New Ireland Forum called a unitary state, um, an integrated state. Maybe you could describe to people, you know, the main features of those two um, models. I, I will, Rory, but if, if you don't mind, I'd like to preface it with a, a brief explanation of why I think those two models uh, are available. Of course. The, uh, our constitution permits two models of the United Ireland. Our constitution in Article 15 allows for Doyle Aaron to recognize a subordinate legislature. The history of that clause is important. It was put in the Constitution of the Irish Free State by Michael Collins to allow for the North to join with its own parliament. And it was kept by Eamon de Valera in 1937. So there's a long uh, constitutional heritage on having both of both the option of recognizing a Northern Assembly or legislature and the alternative idea of uh, dissolving Northern institutions into a 32-county Irish Republic. Those are our available constitutional options, and those are the available options under the Good Friday Agreement. By contrast, our constitution would have to be transformed if a federation were to be contemplated or considered. And a confederal Ireland is ruled out because it would require an independent sovereign Northern Ireland to be a partner with the Republic of Ireland, which is, again, not compatible with the Good Friday Agreement. So if we assume a relatively conservative with a small c narrowing of our institutional options, they, they do effectively, I argue, come down to two and you've correctly described them. In, in one, a devolved Northern Ireland persists with the institutional arrangements of the Good Friday Agreement, as perhaps uh, modified by any changes that are made between now and then. That would involve a power-sharing assembly. A North-South Ministerial Council would persist. The institutions of the uh, British-Irish interaction uh, the British Irish Council and the British Irish Intergovernmental Conference. These could continue in some modified form, um, according to agreements reached between the two sovereign governments. There is one catch, as correctly pointed out by Richard Humphreys, Judge Justice Richard Humphreys, and by Professor Oren Doyle. The Constitution of Ireland does not give Doyle Aaron the authority to recognize a subordinate executive. So at least one constitutional amendment would be required in order to recognize the continuation of a power and sharing executive in the North. So that's uh, model one. Model two is to dissolve Northern Ireland, to in effect recognize that Northern Ireland has been an institutional failure in all its forms both the majority rule tyranny that existed between 1920 and 72, the form of British direct rule 
which existed from 72 until 1999. And then the Good, Far Good Friday Agreement experiments that have been intermittently successful and intermittently stalled uh, since that time. That's our second uh, choice, to dissolve Northern Ireland. But that then sets up a series of questions about what an integrated Ireland would look like. And in the book, I make some effort to show that uh, it would be possible to incorporate those people who identify as British, those people who are Protestant in their religious convictions and beliefs, or by cultural background, in ways that could uh, incorporate important power-sharing principles, including principles of parity, uh, proportionality, and autonomy. And many of these changes, I think, would be required under either model. So I spend some time in the book looking at how there could be appropriate changes to the central government of United Ireland, whether or not there's a devolved government in existence. If you like, I could discuss some of the difficulties of each model, because neither is a, is a route to paradise. Please, if, if, you, if you would, yes. So the problems with a devolved government uh, inside a united Ireland would be bigger than the problems of devolved government inside the United Kingdom, because the weight of Northern Ireland in a united Ireland would be significantly bigger than the weight of all the devolved governments in the United Kingdom put together. And we could have problems of competing majorities, a majority in the North facing a, a, a majority in the South. Uh, we could have support for an all-island um, coalition government that was not supported by a majority in the South. We would have questions of whether deputies in the South could vote on subjects that are devolved to the North. The answer is they couldn't under devolved arrangement. But could Northerners vote on questions affecting the South that were devolved to the North? That could be solved by dividing Doyle Aaron into two uh, entities for certain kinds of voting procedure. How much does that look like a United Ireland? There would be fiscal problems. Northern Ireland would almost certainly uh, initially uh, require some fiscal transfer from uh, the Southern uh, Ministry of Finance. At what level should that be set? How would it be periodically reviewed? What would be the formula? What would be the Irish equivalent of the Barnett formula? So, although a devolved government has many merits from the point of view of unionists uh, and those who've historically identified with Northern Ireland, the entity persists. It could have its own flag. Uh, many of the institutional arrangements with which unionists are familiar, they call it our we country. These could persist. That doesn't mean it would be problem-free. And if you're a unionist or a Protestant, you're now a double minority. You're a minority inside Northern Ireland, and you're a minority inside the Republic of Ireland. When put in uh, deliberative forums, some unionists recognize, actually, we might be better off uh, seeking coalition partners in the South. 
uh, particularly among the more conservative parties, the non-Sinn Féin parties in the South. So the devolved model has many merits, but it also has um, clear difficulties. The integrated model would be a much more momentous change institutionally because it would mean the rapid dissolution of the formal institutions of the North. And major questions would immediately arise about how to organize Northern public administration. Uh, would the police services immediately be integrated? If so, how? Would the educational systems be immediately integrated? If so, how? Uh, would the health services be immediately integrated? If so, under which particular model? And so on. So there's no easy choice. There are, of course, uh, I don't want to present uh, a catalogue of difficulties. Uh, these are also major opportunities for transforming both the, so the South and the North in better directions, for identifying uh, previous uh, flaws in our institutions and for getting, getting them better uh, for the rest of the century. And of course, I suppose you can envisage, um, you know, transitional arrangements of whatever length you can imagine, I suppose, a fair degree of decentralization. Um, one of the main accusations, of course, or criticisms of the Irish state is that it's excessively centralized in many of its functions. So you know, even if you had an integrated um, single state, uh, you could also, I suppose, have a degree of, uh, of, of diffusion of authority. That, that's uh, absolutely right, Rory. And if you if you think about local government, mm. uh, we have a problem. Mm. Uh, the city and county government model persists in the Republic. Mm. It's been abolished in the North. There are now 11 local government districts that don't correspond to historic counties or city boroughs. So in an integrated Ireland, uh, the question would be, do you want a uniform system of local government or do you keep the system that's been designed in the north and is relatively balanced it's one that ensures that there's a roughly equal number of nationalist majority and unionist majority councils we're moving on in in time uh, brendan but i've two more questions i wanted to to ask though there are many many others which arise from your your book um the first is in in broad terms what do you think the essential protections for Northern uh, and Unionist, and they aren't necessarily the same thing, for Northern and Unionist interests um, and values um, in, a, in a New Ireland? A vital question, um, perhaps the most important question. Number one, before all else, the protection of their British citizenship rights and their British identity. So, under the Good Friday Agreement, both governments recognize the right of the people in the North, the birthright of the people in the, in the North, to British or Irish citizenship or both. Now, an Irish government can't keep British citizenship without the British government cooperating on that front. But assuming that it wants to preserve the citizenship rights of its former um, citizens in the North, then it's a simple matter, I think, for the Irish constitution to be amended to recognize such rights. And they'll have to be carefully um, protected. Uh, we don't have to go overboard. Uh, we don't have to say that, say, the president could be elected 
as a British citizen uh, without being an Irish citizen as well, uh, as some, I think, have tacitly suggested. Uh, what we require is that anybody in the North is entitled in perpetuity, provided there's the cooperation of the British government, to have their British citizenship preserved. Um, I think it would be important to ensure equality and participation that all such persons also be Irish citizens so we can fully participate in whatever institutions exist in the United Ireland. So that's number one. Uh, number two is uh, to think about our own institutions in ways that, that, that will ensure there will be no permanent exclusion of the Northern Protestant or the Northern British minority. Fortunately, we already have some arrangements in existence. We have a proportional representation election system. And I, in the book, I um, do a crude simulation of what the politics of the United Ireland might look like. And what I suggest there is that there, right now, there is sufficient support for Ireland to be governed by a centre-left coalition, by a centrist coalition, excluding the hard right and the hard left, and then a centre-right coalition. Northerners would participate in any of those coalitions. Ulster Unionists or Ulster Protestants would uh, participate in centre-right or in centrist coalitions. So even if we did nothing, um, they would have Ulster Protestant voters, Ulster uh, British uh, citizens who are also Irish citizens, would have more influence over the government of Ireland than the, and on a sustained basis than they would inside the United Kingdom. But personally, I would want to go further. Um, I would like to see the Irish cabinet restructured to reflect a very good rule that has worked in the North a rule that should be isolated from the other rules in the North that have not worked well, namely allocating places in the cabinet according to the Dehant principle of proportionality. That would ensure that unionists would typically, on current numbers, have at least two members of every Irish cabinet and uh, a significant number of junior ministers as well. So this would be a way of ensuring proportional uh, representation of the views of people as they vote in the electorate. Some would go further and have a fixed quota of British or uh, Unionist uh, Protestant members of an Irish cabinet. I'm, I don't think that that would be absolutely necessary, but it should be held in reserve as a possibility. So that's at the level of electoral institutions. We should imitate the North. We should have equal constituency, equally sized constituencies, north and south. They should all have, uh, they should all be five seaters, possibly more, but, but definitely five seaters to ensure that even if the Ulster Protestant and British minority continued to fall as a share of the electorate, they would have uh, a clear opportunity to be proportionally represented. Now, other institutions, of course, uh, matter significantly. The Irish security services, the police, the army, the institutions of our 
um, central bank and so on, we would have to make deliberately inclusive efforts to ensure that uh, Ulster Protestants and British people were fully represented in them. I go into minutiae, the President of Ireland should, in my view, uh, have their have his or her authority expanded. They should have uh, the role of nominating additional members to the Senate and have a special responsibility for nominating members of minorities, and so on. Final question in all of this. You've talked a bit uh, about the things that the British government um, should and shouldn't do or can and can't do, in particular relative to the role of the Secretary of State. But this is a, a point you're quite strong on um, in the in the book. Uh, and what do you think as they are the obligations upon the British government, both positive and negative um, in, in this scenario? I'm glad you asked this question, Rory, because you, you as a, a former diplomat who played a central role in the impl implementation of the Good Friday Agreement, you'll be well aware that there are some uh, important phrases in the text of the Good Friday Agreement that were not incorporated into domestic UK law, but they are part of the Good Friday Agreement, which is now protected by two treaties. For the purposes of this conversation, I'll just focus on two of them. Um, there is an obligation on the part of either sovereign government to be rigorously impartial across the diverse populations of Northern Ireland when they're the sovereign government. And that's a, a deeply important requirement. It should guide how the government of Ireland prepares its model of unification. And it should also guide how the referendum is to be conducted. Because you can't be rigorously impartial and on one side in a referendum. So as and when the referendum is called, I think it's vital that the UK's institutional machinery, the machinery of state, be rigorously impartial. That includes uh, public broadcasters. It doesn't mean the Conservative Party has to be neutral on the Union. It's a party. It's not the government. It doesn't require any British party to be neutral. But the British government must certainly be neutral in the management of the referendum and in its conduct. And that notion of rigorous impartiality has implications now, and it has implications in the future. And I'd, I'd like to see that notion re-emphasized. The second is, in the Good Friday Agreement, based on previous um, negotiations, there is a pledge by the British government to ensure that the exercise of self-determination takes place, quotation marks, without external impediment, close quotation marks. I'm quite confident, you can disagree with me if you like, but I'm quite confident that when British and Irish officials were negotiating, to the extent that they thought carefully about the future. Um, they had in mind the idea that Great Britain should not interfere in the exercise of Irish self-determination. Northerners and Southerners, Protestants and Catholics and others, uh, nationalists and unionists and others, should jointly be free to make their own choices over whether to be part of a sovereign United Ireland or whether to be part of the United Kingdom. And I think those two pledges, conjoint without external impediment, 
and rigorous impartiality, I think provide very strong grounds for the Irish government to say to the British government, when the referendum is called, we have to have an agreement on the rules as to how that referendum is to be conducted. And it is an obligation on the UK government, not its particular political parties, to be rigorously impartial. The Irish government is not, at this juncture, the incumbent sovereign government. It's not obliged to be impartial in the referendum. Presumably, the Irish government will want Irish reunification to succeed. But it has an obligation to ensure, after the referendum, that the institutional um, patterns that are built in Ireland are rigorously impartial. Yes, I, I agree with your reading of um, of both of those of both of those terms, and I think without impediment also has the the meaning that after um, referendums, if there is a uh, if there are votes in favour of United Ireland, then there is a clear obligation, and uh, not just on the British government, but in reality, certainly politically on the British Parliament as well under international law to give effect to uh, to those wishes. Yes. Um, Brendan O'Leary, this has been a, a fascinating conversation. I could again only recommend to listeners that they rush out to the shops um, and buy uh, Making Sense of a United Ireland. It covers many, many topics, but it's also uh, concisely and elegantly uh, and at times even with one or two um, jokes and, and flashes of, of wit. And it does that in a text of about 300 pages so uh, thank you again very much indeed Brendan for uh, being my guest um, in this month's podcast thank you Rory Aaron's joint project of the Royal Irish Academy the premier all-island scholarly institution and the Keogh Norton Institute for Irish Studies at the University of Notre Dame's Keogh School of Global Affairs its mission is to publish authoritative, independent and non-partisan analysis and research on constitutional, institutional and policy options for Ireland, North and South, in a post-Brexit context. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find more and read the research in full on this and on all the other articles at aronsproject.com. And my thanks to everybody for listening to this podcast. Thank you.